My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, and welcome back to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Specifically, welcome back to Off-Campus Conversations, where I follow up with a Thomistic Institute speaker who will have given a lecture either on campus or in the setting of a Thomistic Institute conference, uh, so that way we can yeah, chase down some of those insights and, well, work the conclusions to their logical terminus. And that is just what we're going to do today with Professor Jim Madden, joining us from, from Kansas. Thanks so much for joining Off-Campus Conversations. Thanks, Father. I really appreciate it. So, uh, greet, greens from Northeast Kansas. So. Boom. That's it. That's that's a place from which I want to be greeted, especially right, in my right. present exile on a continent which does not value the same things that people value in Northeast Kansas. I will leave that as vague as possible so it doesn't come across as condemnatory. But um, many people will know you from other contributions uh, to the Thomistic Institute podcast and Thomistic Institute things and beyond. Um, from the book that you wrote, Philosophy of Mind, and other publications. Uh, those who don't know you, would you just say a word, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Sure. Uh, you know, once again, I'm, I'm Jim Madden. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I teach at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Gosh, I've been here, it'll be 20 years this summer, so, uh, so here we are. And, um, you know, I ha I'm, I'm a father, I'm, I'm a husband. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, I, I wrote an earlier book, called Mind, Matter, and Nature on uh, philosophy of mind, particularly with respect to Thomism. Uh, I guess what we're going to talk about today is, uh, you know, a lecture that's like kind of a summary of a chapter from a forthcoming book I have called um, Thinking About Thinking, Mind and Meaning in the Era of Technological Nihilism. Right? So still sort of working in philosophy of mind, but, but philosophy of mind less concerned with sort of the metaphysics of the mind-body problem and more concerned with like the place of mindedness in the overall understanding of, of the meaning of a human life, right? So that's, that's kind of the direction I'm going lately. And as you noted, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm something of a TI road warrior, right? So I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of uh, Timothy Institute uh, lectures over the last several years, so yeah. Yeah. So before pushing record, we recounted the fact that we have met at Thomistic Institute events in New Jersey, in Colorado, and in Arizona. Arizona so yep. looking forward to our next central time zone meeting so that way we can do the full sweep. And then from there, it's just, yeah, I guess intellectual retreats in Ireland and England. That's that's all that's left to us. So, Well, hey, my, my, uh, my daughter is probably going to be going to school in Ireland in next year. So it would not be a, much of an arm twist to get me to go to Ireland. Right, that's so. awesome. Yeah. You also have a cool... Um, Thomistic Institute travel principle when possible, or at least as I've observed it, is you often bring a son or two or members of your family yep. more broadly, yep. which is a yep. cool way to, uh, I don't know, live the intellectual life in a family setting. So I can yeah, definitely. you for that. And, 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 you know, when, when your kids grow up in a small rural town, you know, in Kansas, you, you want to expose them to bigger world. And, and I have to, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful to TI for helping me do that. So, you know, my son, Brendan, who's 16, just went with me to university of Santa Barbara last week. Right. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's a great, it's a great probe. It's one of the things I'm really grateful to your organization for providing my family. Yeah. That, uh, you know, my, my kids, when they get to be about 12 or 13, they're old enough. I feel like I can, Hey, can, you know, if they want to come along on the trip, it's, it, they don't have to be supervised so much then I always bring one with me. Yeah. That's awesome. I visited the University of California at Santa Barbara once, you know, like during one of these, I too was once a TI road warrior, visiting all the campus chapters to yeah. kind of, I was like, I was like the TI cheerleader effectively, um, sans pom-poms. Um, but yeah, I, 
I was not prepared for like the devastating beauty of the Southern California coast. Holy smokes. Yeah. I don't yeah. understand how people leave that place. I mean, I suppose I could figure it out if I stayed there long enough, but whoa, pretty place. Very place. Yeah, we got to go hiking up in the up in the hills over Santa Barbara and it was gorgeous. Yeah. That is. Okay. So for this episode, um, we're following up on the lecture that you just described and uh, we thought we could just pursue um, the notion of freedom, liberty, free choice, free will, free judgment. It's described by a variety of terms in the tradition, like the philosophical tradition, the theological tradition, the tradition more broadly. Do you have a particular go-to way that you like to approach it, like under the auspices of freedom yeah. or liberty, free choice, free judgment, indeterminacy? Yeah. So my, my, you know, you can tell by, by looking at, you know, the lecture that, yeah, you know, I guess is available now on SoundCloud, right? And the other platforms. And then, and I had sent you the chapter from the book is I'm sort of like an, an anti-free will, free will advocate. Okay. In that, <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not denying, um, that there is something like, uh, libertarian free will. Okay. That there, there is something like, uh, you know, um, a kind of action without sufficient causal push from behind, right? And in, in, in indeterminacy, indeterminate room for us to operate, you know, as agents. Okay. My concerns, I think, um, our obsession with that particular aspect of the question of free will has like really misguided us philosophically. Okay. Uh, in terms of what is most important in this vicinity and what's in most important and relevant to our lives, right? And I think it, it leads to what I think is a clearly phenomenologically like disconfirmed view of what human action is and how it operates, right? So as you can see in that lecture and in the, in the chapter, I'm, I'm trying, I actually like try as much as I can to kind of diffuse the classic free will debate and talk more about okay, well, what do we want out of this? In the first place, as human beings, like what are we looking for in an account of freedom, so-called, right? And what we're looking for is, you know, the, the like space where human beings can do ethically what I call an ethically significant action, right? And then I kind of do a phenomenology of sorts of of ethically significant action to build an account of what that is. Okay, then, and then what I use that to do is then to reflect on what what people see as the threat to human freedom from things like the Liebig cases in neuroscience to show these have nothing to do with what would be bona fide legitimate human freedom, right? I'm, I'm trying to protect the notion of free will by not taking the bait and talking about it on the terms that the debate has been handed down to us by modern philosophy, and instead to look at it through, say, classical Aristotelian philosophy, say, through, you know, like phenomenological philosophy. I'm very influenced in that way by, by Heidegger and earlier, like, by Hegel, right? And then you mentioned earlier that you had noticed too that like this is a lot. A lot of this I'm drawing. I've learned this from McIntyre. Not not met the man, but like to my reading of McIntyre, right? Part of that I'm, I'm hoping with this, you know, to make a contribution to us like reframing the very debate, right? To begin by asking us like, what does it mean for us, and what's important to us about our status as as ethical actors, right? And let that dictate to us what would count for being free, not. Like, what can we slip by the science and then let that dictate to us what would, what it would be to be an ethically significant actor? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's let's just pursue a particular line of reasoning. Let's just see if we can flesh out. Uh, the only account that I know with any competence is St. Thomas's account because I'm just a hack Thomas. Um, but insofar as that is, I hope, a faithful interpretation of Aristotle, maybe it's a good place from which to take our point of departure. And then since you know 
uh, the 19th, 20th, and 21st century critiques of it, maybe we could just, at each point, we could just say, all right, and these are modern or postmodern yeah. kind of worries or doubts, and here's how maybe this is in response to. So maybe just to start with like the simple fact of, um, you know, we have an intellect and a will, and there's a kind of primacy to the intellect in the formal order and of the will in the efficient order. Uh, we try not to pull those acts apart in an artificial way that would make it as if it's like, I cognize and now I appetize. Um, so we're trying to hold them together and we're insisting upon the fact that they are, you know, to use Eve Simone's language, super determined, right? So they're only going to find rest in an object which is sufficient. And as a result of which, you know, when they engage with lower objects, they're going to be underdetermined. So like never so overwhelmed by a created good as to be forced in some way, shape, or form to choose it. Um, so you've got like a kind of freedom of exercise and a kind of freedom of specification. There's like the on-off, and then there's the, I can see it under this light or under that light. Just as a base, um, what are maybe some like modern worries and ways in which you are sensitive to those and already thinking about how you're addressing them? So I would express this not as a worry, but as... Um an agreement in me, but maybe a terminological uh, switch. Okay. So the way I think of uh, a free action or it, and ultimately an eth ethically significant action is in part something that is subject to reasons explanation. Okay. So, um, you know, one of my favorite examples, I'm using a lot of contexts, right, is if we, um, if we ask, you know, let's say our, our friend Smitty believes that there's a multiverse. Okay. And we could say Smitty believes there's a multiverse because he's read like the astrophysics uh, literature, okay? Or we could say Smitty believes there's a multiverse because he's been drinking cough syrup all morning, right? Okay, all right. And they both they both would explain the belief. Okay, now we'll get to action in a second. They both would explain the belief, but one I would say is not a reasons giving, right? Like if like. What explains uh, Smitty's belief is all causal push from behind. It has nothing to do necessarily with him being grounded in, in, in the space of reasons, right? And him being able to like give reasons that would be significant to another rational being for, for thinking this to be the case, okay? And then like life, what, likewise, if we said like, you know, Smitty is out hunting for ghosts or something like that, he's acting in a way, right? And could say, well, why is he hunting for ghosts? Well, he's been, he's been drinking cough syrup all day, right? Or we could say, because, you know, he's, you know, read certain parapsychological literature and looked at the evidence for it, and he has a well-grounded belief, uh, and he's inferring the action from that well-grounded belief, right? I would say, in that sense, like, he has a reason-sensitive action, okay? And and so, um, I'm not saying that's sufficient for freedom, but I think it's a necessary condition. I think it's the most important one. And I think that's similar to what, what you're saying in the Thomistic idiom, right, is that you have something like a rational appetite, right? That, you know, is the will, right? And you have reason about it. And when those coincide, right, you get an action, right? That we would, that we would identify as an action that somebody is rationally responsible for. Okay. Um, all right. So in your talk, you were talking, well, in your talk, you were talking, sweet Christmas, Gregory, come up with another word. Uh, in your talk, you were describing how uh, we come gradually into possession of these accounts, right? Or these reasonings. And you were talking about, you know, the reason for which you married your wife, uh, it's more clear to you now than it was however many years ago, and you hope that it will be more clear in turn. Um, now, when 
somebody of a, a modern or postmodern bent hears that, they might be inclined to a, a certain skepticism, like this is just subsequent justification, or this is you just telling a story about an act which was predetermined or in some way, you know, causally coerced. Um, so I'm thinking like ways in which we can account for uh, a kind of obscurity moment to moment uh, with like subsequent clarity in our living of life. Um, you know, you can think about like interference or like the enemies of the voluntary. Uh, and you talked a lot about ignorance, or we can also think about like a certain malice or, you know, the, yeah. the effect of the passions, whether they're weak or concupiscent or otherwise twisted. Uh, but then we can also think about just the discursive character of human life. The fact that we only come gradually into possession of our identity and our mission to use kind of more popular terminology. Do you find in one of those avenues or perhaps in a third or a fourth avenue, um, yeah, helpful resources for describing this phenomenon whereby we only gradually come into possession of the reasons for our acting or the fullness of those reasons for acting? Yeah. And so, okay, I... Part of what I'm doing there is um, a kind of backdoor sort of, sort of apologetics, okay? And I don't mean that in, in in like I'm trying to rig the game. These are these are things I've arrived at philosophically. But but there's there's a there's a certain contingency to this. Is that you know it does seem that for very important moments in my life, I have to depend on reasons that are in my environment. By that I mean mainly my cultural environment, right? to guide me. Okay. And so there's a sort of like a lot of my, my, my reasoning is institutionally dependent. Right. Okay. And, and if I don't have institutions that support my ordering, my movement towards a good life, I could just be out of luck. Okay. All right. And that now, it, and I know once again, though, once I'm aware of that, okay, it does force me to ask critical questions at one point. Okay. Indeed are the institutions I depend on are they good ones, right? And, and can I put them to a kind of rational scrutiny, okay? But I don't think I'm ever, like, going to be able, like, to completely be settled. Like, there's, you know, because if I am dependent on things outside of me, ultimately for my reasons, okay? Um, and I have to presuppose them in my own inspection of them, okay? There is a sort of, you know, fear and trembling in this. I think that's an irreducible part of, like, the, the human situation, right? Um Okay, and so, in in terms of re like you asked like, kind of like resources on this, you know, like the, I think you were, you were concerned about how do we hedge against that possibility that maybe you know I'm I've I've been victimized by like what I've inherited, right? I don't think there's an absolute guarantee that you haven't, right? Okay, but I, what I what I see <laughs> ultimate like moral agency is or ethical agency is is like to ever 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 through your slow movement towards independence as a practical reasoner is to be ever, ever, ever better at answering that question, even if we're not fully able to ever settle it in, in our mortal lives. D does that make sense? So like, yeah, yeah. what separates a wise person from a naive person, what says a wise person from an ignorant person is, you know, if I may, like the wise person is less subject to their own possibly internal BS than the, than the naive or ignorant person is, right? Because they've honed these critical skills of practical reason that they've been able to spot better, maybe not infallibly, right? What are the subterranean influences, right, um, that are going on that are leading them in, in their reasons giving, right? So so much of what I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm trying to tip my hat in ways to Nietzsche, right? I'm trying to tip my hat in ways to depth psychology. I'm trying to tip my hat 
in ways um, to evolutionary psychology. In the, in the chapter, I have a long section on evolutionary psychology, right? And I think what all these people do is they point out to us is that it looks like we're dependent on more than our own individual rationality in, in getting our lives on the right track. They're, like we have to depend on things outside of our control, okay? So that means we're subject to a kind of fragility, all right? Okay, and I think those those sources, whether it's Nietzsche or evolutionary psychology or depth psychology, um, or even I, I like I think the Greek tragic poets are doing this for us too. Okay, they are all useful in that they point out what the real risk to our freedom is, and it's a lack of self knowledge. Right, it's an inability to to see our own blind spots. Right, okay, um, and I and I see practical rationality is is moving to where you're like closing those blind spots as much as possible, even if maybe we never get there because we're all fallible. Okay, so following up that line of um, reasoning, maybe to introduce, yeah, two further words into uh, an account of freedom, not necessarily a definition of freedom. It's a little too bulky to qualify as a definition, but um, so interpretation, ratification, it seems like, you know, you kind of operate in the first order. You live your life, you make your choices, you do what you do what you're doing. But then, kind of in the second order, uh, it doesn't have to be metanarratival in the sense of like abstract or distant from, but it's continuous ongoing where you're revisiting your life from a kind of critical distance so as to make better sense of it. Um, For me, you know, I'm thinking theologically, I'm thinking about our lives in the setting of God's providence. So our prudence being a limited participation of God's providence, and that's, you know, active and engaged in practical reasoning in a peculiar way. Um, and that we can have a greater sensitivity to or a more conscious and deliberate participation in that providence, not to say that we're ever going to sound the depths of it because it's incomprehensible, not in the sense that it's, you know, irrational, but just incomprehensible within the compass of our minds, Um, but that we're seeking to become more perfectly, uh, more willingly agents within the setting of this providence and that our prudence and like our kind of reflection about our, our human activity is part of that story. And that with that, you know, if we're talking about interpretation as a kind of intellectual, um, you know, like mode, then then like ratification would be the more volitional mode, I suppose, where it's like, okay, this is this is what it is. This is the hand that I've been dealt. This is the way in which I'm playing it. There are certain ways in which we could make it better. We could ameliorate it. But, you know, it's, it's kind of ongoing. It's a process. And I have a kind of hope uh, that it can be ongoing and in process yet better still. It's like... Um, I'm thinking especially in terms of your emphasis there on, you know, seeking to take steps so as to become more conscious, more aware, um, yeah, like more competent in the exercise of agency. I don't know. Does that does that help in some way? Yeah. So, let, the, okay, I'm really interested in here what you think of this. Okay. So, the way I put it in in the lecture is I see there there's these three conditions for full human, uh, you know, like practical wisdom or freedom. And I see practical wisdom and freedom as like, the same thing okay yeah, yeah is that like one we have to we have to take up something we're given like we we, we cannot bootstrap ourselves in into rationality so i have to inherit a language i have to inherit uh, a cultural history i have to inherit you know a family history i i, I have to her- inherit a religion all these things because from the early phases of my life maybe even most of my life i'm going to kind of just surf on those things and, the, and even like you know, most of my day, I'm not having an existential crisis, you know, thank God, right? I mean, I'm mainly just cruising 
on the the Lebensvelt, the life world that I've inherited. Okay, and I think that's what you're saying. You know, we were kind of just going along, and 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 we're in we're in a world that we've we've been given, and we need that. We have to like start with that. Okay, but in order for us to like not just be children, right, or or, or even for us who are grown to have like real bona fide adult moments, we have to take an ownership of it. Like how you put it, we have to ratify it. Okay, and that means we're gonna put this thing we inherit at a kind of critical distance. Okay, but that's what we do, but is what we do what we ought to do, right? I mean, can I give reasons for what we do? Okay, so then we're going to have this separation there. I see that there's like where prudence is like coming into this now, right? Okay. Um, I would add a third level, and I think this is this is something that's new with the 19th century. Although, I mean, I actually think it's it it's in the in the tragic poets too, though. Is so I have to accept a world. I have to take a life world and live in it and be loyal to it in a way. But then I also have to own it. I have to ratify it. I have to put it to prudence. Okay. But then I have to ask myself, those reasons that I can give for it, are those what actually motivate me? Okay. Right. Um, there's that personal authenticity piece to it too, that I think maybe we've learned that or relearned it relatively late in history. No, I think that is important. Right. So um, the example I give in, in the essays you know, some days my kids are going to hate me because I use their names and all these examples and these, these are going and they're out there. But, but if my son Cormac, you know, you know, one day, you know, grows up hopefully, right. And, and, and he's, he's still a Roman Catholic. And so, you know, he's been like kind of cruising in the Catholic thing his whole life. And then at some point I, I hope he has a critical moment. Yeah. But, but can I give reasons for this? What are the reasons for this? Are they good reasons? Right. I'm not in a cult. I'm in a religion and a religion should be something that I can give reasons for. And he might come to be satisfied by those reasons. Okay. But then let's say, you know, he decides, you know, he wants to marry. Okay. And, and, you know, he understands the place of marriage and what he's inherited. He understands his world. He understands why marriage really is a good thing. Okay. But that could have nothing to do with it internally. What, what he's really trying to achieve by marrying a, a, a particular woman, right? Like he, it might be justifiable, but is that really what moves him? Is he really moved by the good of procreation? Is he really moved by the good of humanity? It's really good by his like the good of their continuation of civilization, all that. Or is there underlying lust or greed, what have you in there? Do you see what I mean? And I think in, like full human freedom would, would be to have come to terms with that too, that I'm not being pushed around by even an ignorance of my own idiosyncrasies, right? Um, and so I think if there is something, and I do think like some of these later you know, movements in philosophy that, you know, come in the 19th century and later. I do think they have something to tell us about maybe those creeping suspicions, right, that we might have about ourselves as individuals, right? That, and it's important to come to terms with those in order to achieve real, actual, like, authentic human freedom. Yeah. Okay, so in light of that, um, maybe maybe just to further the account in that direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've had the experience... Like recently, I, I've had a bunch of hilarious conversation. By hilarious, I mean in no way hilarious uh, conversations yeah. with people in Switzerland. There's like this thing where, I don't know, I don't know that it merits description, but ecclesiologically, this place is different than the United States. So I keep getting corrected for things that I'm not necessarily wrong on, but like I need to be corrected on apparently. Like a lady like stopped me in the street the other day. She was like, she was like, had this man in tow. She was like, uh, wissen Sie, wo ähm, das Arbeitsbüro ist? And I was like, was bedeutet das Arbeitsbüro in diesem Kontext? And she was like, you know, like where like people find their 
like work if they don't have proper work. And I was like, I don't actually know. And she just looked at me like, do not pass go, do not collect $200. She's like, yeah. well, that's a real shame because you're responsible for knowing as much. And I was like, holy smokes. Wow. <laughs> okay, so in the aftermath of that like just this full just, assault. This just random on the street encounter. Random on the street. Yeah, I'm just toddling along, you know, doing some language exercises with my AirPods and I pull them out and this lady's like, I'm about to call you out. And I was like, okay, duly called out. Called out, yeah. So I like got my bearings for the next two seconds and I looked at a lady and I was like, man, a request turned into a chastisement. What a blessing. Yeah. Um, but but like I, I need to reckon with that afterwards because, you know, four seconds elapsed and what I felt were just waves of anger and sadness all just mixed up. And I know that when that happens, I'm going to start existentially buffering from that experience. So I'm going to start assassinating that lady in my mind. Regardless of whether there's any validity to her argument, it might be the case that as a religious, I am more responsible for knowing what the services are available in Freiburg, Switzerland, so that way I can be of yeah. help or assistance when the sure. time comes. That might be legitimate. Um, now, I don't, and that's something that maybe I ought to reflect on, but I'm not going to reflect on it for at least the first two seconds, definitely the first four seconds, because instead, I'm going to be wielding my rationality as a cudgel so that yeah. I can, like, beat her into a bloody pulp with every remaining step of my little walk, yeah. you know? Um, as so, much as your German so, will tolerate. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about this in the sense of, right, so this authenticity or this genuineness that you're describing, it means that we have to grapple with that existential buffering or that smoke screening or that however we want to describe it. And it seems like this is where moral virtue really enters in. Uh, you know, because you have the interconnection of the virtues and you can only reason well insofar as you desire well. So maybe, you know, we're teasing out an account of freedom and it seems like freedom is something that is in process. It's a place at which you arrive only in the course of time, but it's going to involve human integration in a pretty integral way. So, yeah, could you could you keep on with, with yeah. moral virtue? And, and, and may, I, may I use um, your, your, your vocation? Could you use that as an example? Yeah. Okay, so so let's say, you know, here's here's... Your father, right? Um, clearly, the priesthood is an integral part of the world you've inherited, right? The world you've taken up, okay? All right. Um, and then I think you're at a point, obviously, you understand why it's a part of that world. You can give reasons for it, and you can see that those are good reasons, and you can see that that world stands up against the test of the real world in a way, okay? But could you still be pursuing your priesthood for maybe other reasons, rather ugly reasons like that. Okay. As I could be pursuing my marriage or my professor, you know, okay. Right. Yeah, you could. Okay. And so, so if I think Aristotle's right, like the great threat to freedom is ignorance. It's like, and I, and I think, you know, the, the, the Oracle spoke well when it commanded that one know thyself. Right. Cause like the, cause if until we like are willing to look at the possible subterranean motives that are going on inside of us. Right. Um, we, we could be very well, you know, the victims of fate, right? Okay. And that we're just taking what slithers by. Okay. And like, so I, the way I understand when I think of like, let's leave virtue aside for a while, but let's, let's look at vice, right? What is vice? It's invincible ignorance now, right? Like you, you have become ignorant, right? To the point that you can't distinguish what's good from bad, what's true from false. Right. And, um, if I am so unattuned to like my own possible fallings, right? Then those, those, the, the real fallings that I have, the real failings that I have, I should say, they now control me. I am fated by them, right? 
So I see an intrinsic connection between virtue and self-knowledge, right? I mean, especially if you look at like the virtues as relative means, okay? Like I cannot know what is virtuous for Jim till I know where Jim is liable to go wrong, right? And that's what I have to work on in terms of like moving towards making that mean state a disposition. But but I have to, before that, I have to be continent with respect to it, which means I have to know where I'm in continent with respect to it. Do you see what I mean? And so I do think, you know, well, so it's so like, what's, what's, what are a lot of the objections we're going to hear from like the postmodern world, right? You know, you're just into this because of power. You're just into this because, you know, it's, you know, whatever sublimated urge, right? You're just into, you're going to get these unflattering Nietzschean genealogical diffusions of our commitments. And then my response to that is, hey, maybe, maybe. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to look into it. And all I can do is look into it. And I can look into it as hard as I can. And I can do my best to know myself. And if I look into it and I've looked it to my satisfaction, that's the best a human can do, right? But I think the way we deal with it is we don't say it's impossible for a human being to be subverted by something subterranean. I think it's very clear humans can be subverted by something subterranean, right? So I think we should take take like the postmodern objection head on and say, yeah, you're right. Human beings are creatures that have an unconscious that might be pushing them in bad directions. Fair enough. Like I think I think that's biblical. Right? You know what I mean? Um, okay. And so then we should say, yeah, then that's a possibility. And what we are going to see is a part of our achievement of real human practical rationality is to, in fact, look into that. Right. And of course, I can't ever 100 be 100% sure of that, but I don't have to. Right. I, I have to look into it as far as I can. Right. And build my life on it. And in the end, hope I look back on my deathbed, I can understand it all. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's just like, yeah, I, I come back to Alistair McIntyre and his description of dialectic or like epigoge and this idea that as you pursue the discourse, you're clarifying both the conclusions and the principles themselves. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that Alan there's a kind of, at dawn, right? A quote right. Yeah. Yeah. There's just like, there's a sense in which you need to recognize the fact from the outset, not that you're on terra infirma, but that you're doing something different. Yeah. Because I think a lot of us approach it as if we were doing speculative discourse when we're yeah. doing practical discourse. Exactly. And because we approach it like speculative discourse, we expect a speculative certitude. But practical discourse doesn't afford, like you said, right. you know, but practical certitude. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean I just because it's not speculative certitude. practical reasoner to do it. Sorry to interrupt you, Father. No, no, no. I just depend on myself as a successful practical reasoner to do it. But it seems like I have to be a good practical reasoner along the way. Yeah, to get to that point, right? Yeah, yeah, the, I, and I think that um, I don't know this. Maybe, maybe this will just become theological, but there's a sense in which that is healing and elevating, because I think there's a kind of modern or postmodern temptation to divorce the thinker from the discourse, to treat the discourse as if it were just per se nota, but entirely abstracted from the prosecutor of the discipline, whereas. Practical reasoning just doesn't afford you that luxury. <laughs> I mean, you could say, yeah, you've got like a first principle of practical reason, you know, do good and avoid evil. And then you ask, where does that register? And then once you ask that question, you're already involved in the agent, right? It registers as conscious discourse or it registers as something that has an intellectual content, but also registers at the level of inclination, which inclinations are healed by virtue, which virtues, you know, conduct you towards the very ends, which constitute the discourse in some way. Um, yeah, so maybe, yeah, like f freedom as inextricably um, uh, 
yeah, is inextricably practical. I think that's also something that maybe just gets left out of the conversation when people treat it as if it were an on-off switch, like a kind of binary choice. Yeah, and truth or, be told, or it's, it's more of this development. The fringe is different, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and so it seems to me like all like the way I would put it in kind of the phenomenological language is like, um, what, this is all only makes sense in a backdrop of concern or care, which are sort of like technical terms for Heidegger, right? Okay, and like like it, they're literally like it's Sorga is a German, right? So it's got this uh, agricultural cultivation. Okay, so like I can only I, I make sense of things ultimately in my practical life in terms of my cultivating something, right? In the way that I, I care for my garden, I care for my children, I care for my friends. Okay. And so, like, what practical life is, isn't choosing between options um, between which I'm indifferent. It's actually pursuing things I care about and I want to grow and foster. You, you know what I mean? And I think for me, maybe this is, like, too personal, but, you know, when I, when I started on this kind of inquiry, it was, you know, when I reached middle age and my kids were growing up and I was looking at, okay, really, what was I doing when I raised these people, right? And I wasn't training them to, you know, like exercise a freedom of indifference. I was training them to pursue the things that are most worth care, right? And interestingly, that was my way of caring for them, right? And so I I think this idea, I love how you put that, is like, 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 there's, like, we cannot confuse practical and speculative wisdom, right? And practical wisdom is just that, it's practical, and it's something we're involved with, we care about it, right? Uh, there will be, I think, an irreducible emotional aspect to this, right? Okay. Um, but that's what binds us to it, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think that's, I mean, another point on which McIntyre's really good uh, when he just kind of sounds the death knell on the Enlightenment project and just says, there is no impartial ground from which this can be assessed. And I think that gets to the point that you just made because we're always going to care about the discourse insofar as the discourse is either humanizing or dehumanizing just to take it in basic terms, you know, like, it's always going to involve us, and as a result of which, we have to express some modicum of care. Um, because once we begin to act as if it were possible to distance ourselves from that, yeah, I think that we're doing, we're just doing something different. And then the question of authenticity or dishonesty is uh, is a really live one. <laughs> agreed, agreed, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think I think the greatest sign of like I'm being inauthentic is I'm claiming I'm I have this kind of like speculative indifference to this. Well, no, you don't, right? Yeah, like something's moving you, right? Yeah, that's it's, and I think that I mean, just in the the little time that we have remaining, I'm thinking about this too when it comes to like the the apostolic life or the evangelical life. Um, I'm in a like I said a peculiar ecclesiolo ecclesiological or ecclesial setting here. And um, so something about it that I find strange or discomforting is that I don't really know what people want, because it seems like there's a kind of tacit despair in many European churches, and it's like, yeah, we're we're just exercising our bureaucratic competence to kind of lay this to bed, and it's like, what in the world is happening? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, but it's what like, if we it's like people like ecclesial hospice, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's palliative yeah. care. Um, it's fascinating. And I'm like, but what if we did this? And people are like, you Americans are so enthusiastic. I'm like, man, such a, such a word right there. Um, right. But, but, but like, I find that it's just better to at like better at the outset to just say, like, I want everyone to be Catholic. Like, I just, I want everyone to be Catholic. And that might to you sound imperialistic or colonialistic or yeah. whatever the appropriate adjectives for both of those things are. But it's like, it's because I'm convinced of the good of it. 
you know, might I have some dominion or conquest at, at work, you know, in my limited expression or sublimated expression of not being able to you build might, buildings and have a family. You do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I might, but, I, but and so let's investigate that. And I've looked as hard as I can. And I don't think I do. So I've done my due diligence, right? But I think we have to admit the possibility because I think it diffuses the objection, right? Yep. No, that's that's right. That has to be right. And I think that that also, yeah, just like the modesty of the claim and then the humility, like the kind of epistemological and existential humility of the claim commends the truth of it. And I think that in saying that, you're able to give a living witness of a freedom on the way and say like, yeah, because like the way that some people back off claims is a dishonest, is a dishonest manner, I think, of going about. It's like, well, it could be this, but it also could be that. I don't know. But then it's enforced upon you through the back door and you're like, whoa, (laughs) hey there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm sorry for taking this like in like a more personal directions, but but it was great. I do find as I approach my 50th birthday now, right, because I'm 49 is the more and more I'm comfortable with with I don't knows, right, and and, and a, a degree of of uncertainty, but still commitment. Do you know what I mean? To admit, yeah, I mean, my life didn't have to go the way it did. I maybe I could have had different commitments and things like that. That's true, but but I can still put them to rational scrutiny and see I don't see something wrong with this. But still admit, yeah, that there could be something other operating in there. But I've done my best, right, and. As I look back, as now there's more of my life to look back on than there is to look forward. I have increased confidence, but less of a need to say I can like have like an absolute like apodactic certainty of that too. Yeah, and I think that's maybe we could end on the final note. Just the difference between irony and humility, or like a, a humility on the way and an irony that's arrived in some sense. That's beautiful. I'm yeah. thinking about irony again, apropos of McIntyre, the way that he describes Richard Rorty and dependent rational animals. And he says, when you engage in that as a kind of method of discourse, you leave nothing, right? right? Like all the fundamental commitments just wither and die. Yep. And so we're not, it's not an ironic claim to say like, I'm going to distance myself from the things that I've said, because no, it's, it's, a, it's a mode of commitment, but a commitment with the recognition that it's limit, or I'm limited, weak and wounded on the way, try yep. my best. And that's that's humility, and that makes all the difference. And I think that that's really a way of of salvaging discourse at present, because there's so many ironic moves that we see in the public space, which just leave us like with nothing to lay hold of and no confidence as like who our friends are. It's like exactly. I don't even know what you think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, way, the way I put it, um, I don't remember if it's in the in the essay or in the lecture, but it's in the chapter. You know, where I say to truly love what you inherit it. And you, what you inherit in the tradition you take up, well, includes that you love it so much you wouldn't tolerate it being a sham. Okay, and so that means, yeah, if I really love this thing, I'm going to put it to a kind of critical scrutiny, right? And I'm going to make sure that my relationship to it isn't just a sham, too, right? And so, yeah, I'm going to be willing to ask all these deep, dark questions, and maybe some of those deep, dark questions are not the sorts of things we can get a speculative certainty about, right? But that doesn't necessarily undermine it. That's just that's just honesty. And I don't think that's in any way in way of commitment. Right. Yeah. Boom. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having taken the time and for uh, for having sussed it out. It's certainly helpful to me. I imagine it's helpful to those who listen in. It's been helpful to me. Too. Uh, cheers. Cool. Um, for those who would like to, you know, follow up with your work um, or follow up with you, are there means that they could? Um, yeah. Probably do your so? best bet is. Um, uh, you know, there's, I've got a number of lectures on the, the 
the TI with you're on Spotify, you're on SoundCloud, or you, or else you, you all everywhere, everywhere, yep. everywhere, yeah, wherever you get your podcasts, right? So you can exactly. find stuff there. I um I have a website uh, jdmadden.com, but it's mostly links back to TI lectures. So right, nice. <laughs> I'm frequently on uh, a podcast called Philosophy for the People, um, okay. with uh, a guy named Pat Flynn, who's a Catholic philosopher. So we we uh, we we chatted up there quite a bit. So they can find me there. Well, okay. All right. Well, then turning to you, the listener, thanks so much for having tuned in. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the TI podcast on YouTube or on your podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And then, yeah, we'll look forward to chatting with you at the next opportunity on the off-campus conversations. He remembers the name of this sub-segment and then he pronounces it correctly. So, no of our prayers for you. Please pray for me and uh, we'll catch you next time on uh, the Thomistic Institute podcast.